Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today on Something You Should Know, when you get your coronavirus vaccine shot, there's something you can do to make it hurt less. Then, something's wrong with the food we eat, and it's causing people to get fat. And what we've done basically is taken wholesome food and made it bland, and taken junk food and made it irresistible. And this explains so much about why so many people are eating too much of the wrong food and not enough of the right food. It comes down to flavor, the pleasure we take in eating. Also, how much do you hate it when you can't get a real human being on the phone? And have you ever done something awkward or felt awkward? We all have. One of the things that I like to tell people is being awkward is not the worst thing. It's a little inconvenient, I think, until you figure things out. But people are surprisingly patient with social awkwardness once they get to know somebody. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often-once-in-a-while-try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. You know, it's pretty difficult to get very far in life without having to get a shot, a needle. And there's this theory that if you smile when you get a shot, it hurts less. Well, since we are pretty much all about to get a shot or two when the coronavirus vaccine is available, researchers at the University of California in Irvine put this theory to the test. They got 231 volunteers to take saline injections, and they had some people smile, some people grimace, and some people maintained a neutral expression, and some people did a little fake smile. 
And during the injections, the researchers recorded each participant's heart rate and skin conductance levels, all of which are markers of stress. In addition, each volunteer reported to the researchers how much pain they anticipated and how much pain they felt, as well as their emotional state during the test. Well, what they found is that people who smile a real smile and people who grimaced reported a pain reduction of about 40% compared to people who had a neutral expression or did a fake smile. The only caveat is that it has to be a genuine smile or a genuine grimace, meaning a smile where you use the muscles around the eyes and a grimace which uses the muscles in the forehead. A fake smile and a fake grimace didn't seem to do much. So, when it's time to go in for your coronavirus vaccine shot, go in with a big, genuine smile on your face, or a big grimace on your face, but make it authentic, and it should hurt less. And that is something you should know. Whenever you hear a discussion about food and health and why people are overweight, the usual suspects in that discussion are things like Portion sizes. Portion sizes are too big. Or, or we're too sedentary. We need to move more. Or the problem is sugar. We eat too much sugar. Or maybe it's fat. There's too much fat in the diet, and that's what's causing us to gain weight. And the fact is, all those things probably have something to do with it. But there is another suspect in this investigation. It's taste, flavor, or more accurately, the lack of flavor in our food. This is really interesting, and I hadn't really heard this before, but here to tell you about it is Mark Schatzker. He is a writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. He's a frequent contributor to the Dr. Oz Show, and he is author of a book called The Dorito Effect. Hi, Mark. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. So explain what the Dorito Effect is and why it's so important. Yeah, the Dorito Effect refers to the fact that all the food we eat is becoming more and more like a Dorito, which is to say that the the natural food we grow, the corn part of the Dorito is getting blander and blander. And yet we have imbued it with this irresistible flavoring. This is flavor technology. This is that magic powdery awesomeness that makes a simple corn chip light up your brain and go, my God, that tastes awesome. That's happening to all of our food. So why are we growing bland food? I mean, if, if we know what a good ear of corn tastes like, or we know what a good tomato tastes like, why are we growing tomatoes and corn that taste so bland? Well, for a very simple reason is that we have been focused for, you know, more than half a century on growing more and more food. And it's been a spectacular success. The yield in, in, Um, agriculture has just been a phenomenal growth. And that's important because we have less land and a lot of mouths to feed, but it's come at a price. We have a lot more food, but that food is less nutritionally dense and it just doesn't have the flavor. And tomatoes are probably the best example of this. We want those tomatoes to have that burst of delicious tomato flavor like they do at the peak of summer. And they so often taste like like watery cardboard. And so what's the problem then. So so maybe food's more bland and maybe we snazz it up with some seasoning. So what? Yeah, so what? Why is this a problem? The problem is because we're essentially programmed to eat 
for flavor. And what we've done over time is while the good food, the stuff we grow on farms has become bland, we've developed this flavor technology, which essentially replaces the exact chemicals we're losing with, with, you know, chemicals that come out of a factory. This is what we put on things like potato chips. We put them into soft drinks. And what we've done basically is taken wholesome food and made it bland and taken junk food and made it irresistible. And this explains so much about why so many people are eating too much of the wrong food and not enough of the right food. It comes down to flavor, the pleasure we take in eating. Well, so often in discussions about why people are so heavy, we hear things like, well, it's because we're, you know, we're not moving enough, we're not exercising enough, or it's portion size. The portion sizes have gotten so big over the last 20 or 30 years. Or, or then it's sugar. Sugar's the problem, that sugar is why people are so fat. And now, and now <laughs> you're coming along and saying, no, no, it's bland food that we're flavoring up with Dorito sauce that's screwing up everything. Yeah, so not to say any of the things aren't important, but flavor is kind of the wizard behind the curtain that's pulling all the strings. Now, you mentioned sugar, and, and that's a really interesting example because we think of things like sugary drinks, and it's all that sugar that's the real problem. Uh, but think about soft drinks. All those soft drinks on the shelf at the grocery store from a nutritional point of perspective, that's just soda water and sugar. Now, go home and pour yourself a glass of soda water, stir in some sugar, and tell me how that tastes. Well, I've done it. It doesn't taste very good. I defy anybody to drink that with their dinner. But when you add flavorings, that is the magic that turns this sugary soda water into all those different soft drinks. Coke, Pepsi, 7-Up, Dr. Pepper. It's the flavorings that give it that distinctiveness and that magic that makes you drink it and go, ah, that tastes delicious. And so is the problem then that we have all this flavoring, the Dorito uh, dust and the uh, flavors in the soda that make us want to consume too much? Yes, that's precisely it. And I'll give you a great anecdote. The original Doritos were just tortilla chips, just salted tortilla chips, like the kind that we dip in salsa and they bombed. They didn't sell. The complaint was this snack sounds Mexican, but it doesn't taste Mexican. So the next move was to imbue this with something that was very new at the time, flavor technology. The first flavored Doritos tasted like taco. We had the ability to give a, a corn chip this incredible dynamic flavor that made it kind of like eating a meal. Like it didn't taste exactly like a taco, but it had that zing. It had that meaty depth and it turned a snack that people didn't want to eat into a snack that people could not stop eating. That is the power of flavor technology to make humans eat. Well, when you look at potato chips, just plain old regular potato chips, there isn't a lot of flavor to them. I mean, potatoes are relatively bland. It's really a salty, crunchy experience. It isn't so much the flavor, I don't think, other than the, the saltiness of just a plain old potato chip, isn't it? Of, of a natural potato chip. But, but then you think of all those flavored potato chips, and there's like a just, I mean, too many to count. And those are a completely different kind of eating experience. It's, it's just dynamic, it's, and it's, it's wonderful. I mean, people love it. And so, so the problem is that, that because we love it, we eat more of it, and it tends to be high in calories, and then people get fat. And it's even deeper than that. It's because the, the question is, why does food have flavor to begin with? 
And we get the answer from animals. You know, animals don't know a thing about nutrition. They don't know what calories or protein, carbs, yet obviously they must have this ability to eat what they need. Otherwise they'd die, they'd, they'd all be extinct. Well, how do animals do it? And they do it using something called flavor feedback, which is to say their brains associate the flavor of the food they're eating with what they need. So if let's say a goat or a sheep becomes deficient in a nutrient like phosphorus or a vitamin, it will seek out flavors. It will begin to crave flavors that will bring it the nutrition that it needs. So when we put these flavors in foods, we think, oh, what's the big deal? There's no calories and flavors. We're just making it taste better. But what you're doing is you're actually, you're putting this sort of sheen of nutrition onto something where it doesn't belong. So your brain thinks it's eating, you know, get back to that taco Dorito. Your brain thinks it's getting protein. It's getting more than just a corn chip, but what does it get in the stomach? It just gets it just gets fat, salt, and carbs. So it's really quite devious. It's not just a simple indulgence. We're actually really messing with how our, our eating program works. So why wasn't this ever a problem before in the sense that, you know, I mean, if I look back and think of some of the best food and the best meals I ate, uh, it wasn't junk. It was, you know, grandma's apple pie and... and and, you know, I, if I could, I'd eat half the pie, but, but I didn't. That's right. And that's because real food is satiating in a way that junk food just isn't. It has so much more going on. You know, it's really interesting. We talk a lot about chemicals and we think, oh, there's too many chemicals in junk food. But the truth is, it's real food that has all these chemicals. If you look at something like a strawberry, there's thousands of chemicals in them. Junk food is actually really simple. So it has this sort of simple flavor that's enticing but in truth, it's, it doesn't come close to what nature can achieve. But the problem is we've denuded the food that we grow of, of its actual flavor. That it's, it's just not really fun anymore. That's, that's why we, you know, we're searching for things like heirloom chickens and heirloom tomatoes, because we want to get that flavor back. You know, it's, it's really interesting. If you look at the recipes for chicken over time, 80 years ago, when we roasted a chicken, it was just salt and pepper because chicken had this inherent goodness to it. Well, now you've got to brine it, you've got to put a rub on it, you've got to blitz it in something when it's done. We have to work so hard to make the food that we grow taste good because it's just, it's just all kind of becoming like wet cardboard. Really? I mean, chickens really taste that different than they did 80 years ago. Oh, it's, I mean, I've done it. I've, I've bought, I've made what, what I would call classic fried chicken. You make this from a fryer chicken, which is a, about a 12-week-old chicken, which was a young chicken in the 1940s and is twice as old as a chicken is today and much smaller, but which is all to say it has this incredible chickeny flavor. You take one bite and you just light up and it, it, it's impossible to describe until you've experienced it. But, you know, we say chicken doesn't have flavor. Chicken does have flavor or it used to. It just doesn't anymore. So what do we do about this? I mean, if, if the food that we buy at the store is bland... It's bland. I mean, it is what it is. So now what? Yeah, it, it seems hopeless, doesn't it? But I, I don't think it is because I think there's lots of signs that our palate, though it can go in the wrong direction, it can also go in the right direction. If you think of something like the craft beer movement, whether you like it or don't like it, what's really interesting is that if, if you've gotten a time machine, went to the late 80s and told a bunch of beer executives that, you know, off in the future, there'll be all these people spending lots of money on these beers that have, you know, IPAs with hops and they've got coffee in them or these lagers made to these German recipes. They say, not a chance. Everybody just drinks basically the same beer, but with a different label. But we are now motivated and we spend money 
to drink beer that really has a distinctive flavor where the craft of making it and who made it is important to us. So I think this can happen again. There's lots of promising science. There's a, there's a scientist at the University of Florida who, who you know, has been studying tomatoes essentially his whole life, and he's found the genes that produce flavor in tomatoes. Now, one thing that's interesting is they're all connected to the nutrition of a tomato. But the other thing is we can now undo the damage. We can breed tomatoes. We can grow tomatoes that you get a big crop. It's disease resistant. It's got all these traits that we need for it to you know, survive in the marketplace of today. But they also taste delicious. So we can get the flavor back in there. We just have to care about it. We have to spend money on it. We have to tell the producers, hey, we want our food to taste good. We're talking about the bland, <laughs> flavorless food you're probably eating and the ramifications of eating it. We're talking with Mark Schatzker. He's author of the book, The Dorito Effect. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Mark, it also seems worth adding to the mix in this conversation is the fact that people don't eat at home anymore. We're not eating home cooking, which traditionally has been more healthy than eating, you know, fast food, deep fried junk. And so by not eating dinner around the dinner table and instead eating out or getting takeout, that's certainly got to be contributing to the problem, no matter how flavorful the food is. Well, and here's the other thing is a lot of the time, you know, we talk about fast food restaurants. A lot of these sit down restaurants that we think are restaurants are not. Their, their food is pre-made in factories and it's just reheated. They call it re-thermalizing. So, so you know, the, the waiter or waitress will say, I'll get your food from the kitchen. It's not a kitchen. They're not preparing food. They, they don't have raw ingredients that they're chopping and cooking and making sauces. And when you look at their ingredient lists, when they publish these things, you see all the same stuff that you find in potato chips and soft drinks, which is to say flavorings. They might call it artificial flavorings. They might call it natural flavorings, but it's the same thing. They're putting stuff in food 
that gives it this simulation of deliciousness, but it's not real food, at least, at least not for me. But it also seems as if there are some restaurants, some foods that people do crave. I mean, here in California, I mean, the line at In-N-Out Burger every day is huge because people are like devotees of that. Those burgers do something, but they're not particularly low in calories, and nor are they particularly small. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting point. And I think, you know, one of the reasons we're eating so much food is that when we confuse our brains, when, when we cross wires and, and start to confuse, you know, the brain thinks, I thought I was eating blueberries, but what I got was this sugar water. I think one of the ways we compensate is by eating more. We're, we're kind of in a confused state. And we've all had that experience where you're hungry, you start to eat while you're eating, you know, you're, you're stuffing your mouth. And then afterwards, you feel regret, you think, you know, what the why did I do that? I feel awful. I ate too much food. And I think it's because we've kind of become disconnected from what the eating experience should be. Well, I think too, part of the eating experience is also cooking it. And if everybody's eating out and just grabbing a bag full of goo instead of, you know, learning about food and what it does and how it works. I mean, I think that's, that's part of the equation. It may not be the big part, but... I, I totally agree with you. And, and I think we get back into this problem that when you're using bland ingredients, like when, you're, when your tomatoes and your chicken and, and your carrots all don't have flavor, you know, you cook according to the recipe. It might be like from a famous French chef or something, and you're, you're disappointed. And you think, oh, you know, I'm a terrible chef. But when you cook with better ingredients, if you go to a farmer's market or something, they get really good ingredients. Cooking's easy. I mean, it's, you just need three good ingredients in a, in a pot, and you'll be amazed at how good it tastes. So, uh, since you mentioned farmer's markets, what's your sense of the things that are available at a farmer's market versus the same thing at the grocery store where it's just a world of difference? Besides, I, I think tomatoes are a big one. I think, you know, I'm a meat eater. Um, I think if you can get pastured pork or pastured chicken, it's just unbelievable the difference in flavor. I like to make my own sausages. I, there's a, an Italian recipe I love that's got fennel seeds in it. And when I make this recipe with pastured pork, which is, you know, pigs raised the way they're supposed to be outdoors, burrowing, eating this and that, the flavor will just blow you away. And when I make this with the cheap, cheap pork that I buy at the supermarket, you just bite into it and you're just kind of like, it's just missing something. It just doesn't have it. What about more traditional, old-fashioned butcher shops, or even the stores that seemingly are are more natural and, you know, like Whole Foods and Sprouts and those kind of stores? Would those be better bets to buy the kind of food you're talking about? I think sometimes, but as far as this being kind of a cure-all, no, it's not that simple. You really need to ask questions. Now, you can go to some of these places and, you know, for example, for beef, they might have... Uh, really good imported grass-fed beef, for example, that might be great. But just because you bought it there doesn't mean it's better. There, there's some of these local butcher shops that try really hard to forge relationships with local farmers. They do a great job. And some of them just put on this kind of old-timey act and put on the old apron and the funny hat, and they're just selling, you know, commodity stuff. So unfortunately, you kind of have to be a scholar just to, to get good food. You have to be like a intrepid reporter and you know get to the bottom of what you're eating i wish it wasn't this way i think it will change but you know you got to work hard well i mean it's it's kind of good news but it's kind of bad news because there, there is no easy way to fix this um because we've been gone down this road it seems for so long it, it's hard to imagine a u-turn here 
That's right. And, and you know something, I think the turn will happen, but I think it's like a U-turn for an aircraft carrier. It takes a long time. And, and you know, we, we see promise with things like like farmers markets, like craft beer, American cheese has gotten a lot more interesting and gotten better. We see things like grass-fed beef and and so forth, but it's all incremental. Things are much better now than they were 15 years ago, but we got a long way to go. Right. Well, I mean, but, but the fast food problem is uh, it hasn't gone anywhere, and the obesity problem hasn't gone anywhere. So, so it, it's gotten worse. It keeps getting worse. I mean, it's it's the worst problem we face. Uh, you know, we're making progress with cancer and heart disease. Obesity is getting worse. The harder we fight it, the worse it gets. And it does seem that. Well, I mean, it just it, it seems like there are so many prongs to the problem that you can't just point and say, nah, if everybody just did this, the problem would go away. It just seems there are so many pieces to this puzzle that it's almost impossible to put it together. So, you know, I think you're right. This is a really complex puzzle. But what's fueling it all is the choices that we make. Every time we buy something, we're giving an incentive to industry to do this or to do that. If we think of flavor being really important, but flavor made by nature, if that's how we spend our dollars, every time we do that, we're giving the system a little signal that this is what I want. I don't know what the right metaphor is, whether the cat is already out of the bag or it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle or whatever the metaphor is most appropriate, but we already have Doritos and we already have all these really tasty fake foods that people love. It, it's hard to imagine people would give that up. They do. And it, these are hard habits to break. The only thing I can say is when you do have these experiences of really good food, if you, if you have incredible wild blueberries or a really good tomato, that's addictive in its own way, too. That keeps you coming back. So I, I think that's the only way you, you can fight the, you know, the power of fake flavor is with even better real flavor. It is interesting that we humans, who are supposedly the smartest creatures on the planet, this problem of uh, lots of us being overweight, this problem doesn't seem to affect other animals who are supposedly not as smart as us, but they've got it figured out. Well, I think, you know, the part of the, this research that so interested me was this amazing ability that animals have to, to seek out the nutrients they need. And the big question I had is, are humans the same? And of course, we don't think that now. We think, well, what are we doing? We're, we're eating all this terrible food. We can't control what we eat. But if you look historically, there's some really interesting stuff. I found a, a chaplain's record of a voyage. Um, it was a ship called the Centurion, and they were lost at sea in the Pacific Ocean. They had scurvy, which is a vitamin C deficiency. And back then, the scientists had no idea what caused scurvy. They thought it was like fog and all, they had all sorts of wacky ideas. But the sailors knew that one of the first signs of scurvy was a craving for fruits and vegetables. They would sit there and they would dream of eating fruits and vegetables and they would wake up in tears. And finally, this ship with this horribly sick crew washed up on this island called Juan Fernandez in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And they scampered on shore and they started eating like wild turnips and moss. And they said how delicious it tastes. Now imagine that, wild turnips and moss. And this tells you that our palates are intelligent. And that's what we messed up with flavor technology. We got this really intelligent part of our brains confused. Well, it is interesting to think, and it certainly makes a lot of sense the way you've described it, how a part of this problem is the quality of our food, the flavor of our food. And, and if we had more flavorful food like we used to, at least part of the problem might go away. 
Mark Schatzker has been my guest. He is a writer and author. His book is called The Dorito Effect, and you'll find a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, Mark. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You and I and everyone else has had awkward moments where we've said something or done something other people have noticed and we feel awkward. Then there are people who seem to be socially awkward much of the time when they're in the company of other people. I think part of the definition of the the term nerd includes social awkwardness. So how should we handle our own awkwardness, and how should we handle other people's awkwardness, given that all of us are awkward some of the time? Joining me with some insight into awkwardness is Tai Tashiro. Tai is a relationship expert who received his Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Minnesota. He's been an award-winning professor at the University of Maryland and the University of Colorado, and he is author of the book Awkward. The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. Hi, Ty. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a definition. What is awkwardness? What does it mean to be awkward? Everyone has awkward moments. And that's one way to think about uh, defining awkwardness is what happens when you have an awkward moment. Well, those are just small deviations from minor social expectations. So not having spinach between your two front teeth, that's a pretty minor social expectation when you put it in context. But when when that happens, when you make that mistake, it sure causes a lot of embarrassment uh, and a lot of discomfort. Um, it just shows you how attuned the human brain is to maintaining smooth social interactions and social harmony. Now, you can also define awkwardness as someone who's an awkward person. And Awkward people not only have more awkward moments than the average person, but we know from psychological studies they actually see the world and think about the social world differently than people who aren't awkward. And so some of those differences in how they see the world makes it difficult for them to process social information uh, in an efficient and smooth manner. And so do we have a sense of how many people consider themselves to be awkward? That's actually interesting because around 40% of people consider themselves to be like a chronically awkward person, which is probably a little bit high. So if listeners are thinking, uh, maybe I'm awkward, uh, it might be the case, but it's really only about 10 to 15% of people would qualify as actually chronically socially awkward. 
But it says something about our society and about our social life that so many people feel like um, their social interactions are consistently awkward. Why do you suppose that is? Why would we feel so not in step with everybody else when, at least according to you, that, that, that that's just not true? That we're just hard on ourselves or we're just too self-critical or what? I, I think that's part of it, Mike. You know, I think we are, we have gotten really hard on ourselves. We've gotten really perfectionistic, uh, not only about our social lives, but our work lives and a whole host of other things. There's also uh, the issue that social life and society is changing at a really rapid rate these days. So if you just take social media, for example, by itself, that's actually a whole set of new social expectations to get used to as far as how you present yourself on, let's say, Twitter versus Instagram versus TikTok, uh, how you uh, receive other people's information and interact with that, whether you like it. Uh, or comment on it. And so there's all these different things now because of technology, because we're more urban, far more urban than we used to be. We have to adapt to new social expectations all the time. And then that just makes it easier for us to not know completely what to do um, or to trip up on what might be expected. Do you think awkward people think their awkwardness makes them less than or just different than? Well, yeah. So for kids and teenagers um, and even young adults, their social awkwardness is associated with, um, you know, feeling worse about themselves, a lower self-concept, more depression, uh, more anxiety. And it's understandable because we all need to fit in. Uh, We all need to feel like we belong. And if one of the things in life that's kind of tricky for you are the set of skills needed to make that happen, yeah, it can be, it can be pretty tough. And I think for kids, one of the things that gets me is when I hear uh, high school students or junior high students who come up to me and uh, talk about just how tough it is for them internally, uh, but then also they can get bullied or made fun of or whatever else. And it's kind of the last thing you need when you're, you know, 12, 15 years old, trying to figure out how to navigate the world and, and here you're a bit socially awkward, uh, that just makes things, makes things tougher. The good news is that as people get older, um, you can learn the social skills you need to learn. We also get, of course, more uh, centered in ourselves. And as that natural maturation process happens, then you find that um, awkward people settle in really nicely. Well, do you distinguish between socially awkward, physically awkward? Is it all the same thing? There, is there different kinds of flavors of awkward? Yeah, that's one of the uh, interesting aspects of awkwardness is, is it can manifest in so many different ways. Uh, if we all think back to junior high, it seems like all of the forces of awkwardness manifest at once, <laughs> for better or for worse. You're kind of gangly and and physically clumsy and uh, things are growing at erratic rates. Uh, Your social skills can be uneven. Sometimes you're popular. Next day, maybe not. One of the things they found in research is that these things are kind of loosely correlated or loosely associated with each other. So, for example, uh, physical clumsiness is 
kind of associated with some of the socially awkward things like communication skills or uh, social skill deficits. Uh, it's not guaranteed, but um, they do tend to kind of cluster together. That stereotypical junior high awkwardness, though, I think almost everybody feels it to some extent or another, and in most cases it would appear that it goes away, that it's that time of life, and then it disappears for many, but not all. Is that, is, is that re- usually where it starts? Yeah, so it, um, you're right about that. So I, I've never met a person, actually, who, who says that junior high went really smoothly for them. Um, everyone I've run into uh, will say, yeah, I was uh, super awkward when I was in junior high. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, one is that we gain a lot more abstract thinking capability. So we can think about our social relationships in terms of popularity um, and reputation and all these kind of abstract things that go with social life that previously we didn't think as much about. And of course, that's very confusing to think about how much should I meet other people's expectations? Uh, How much should I go my own way and be very independent? Uh, Whether that's with uh, how you play with one another Uh, the kinds of interests you have, or even the kind of styles you wear. Um, That's one of the reasons why I think in junior high so many of us struggle with those kinds of things. Now, people who will go on to be awkward in young adulthood and adulthood, they're actually further behind the curve in junior high. So they have these studies where they'll compare people on things like eye contact or how well they understand other people's emotions And people who are going to grow up to be awkward are actually a little bit below average uh, on all of those different kinds of things. And so it just continues to be a problem as they get older. Do most people who consider themselves awkward, are they seen as awkward by other people? Or is this more of a self-critical thing? In uh, social psychology... We would, we would call this self-observer agreement. So I rate myself, let's say, as awkward at like a 9 out of 10. The question is, would other people who know me, um, teachers, uh, friends, classmates, would they agree with my rating? And what they find in those studies is that, yes, <laughs> there tends to be pretty good agreement between how awkward people think about themselves and how other people how other people see them. Now that can be alarming uh, for someone who feels socially awkward. But you know, one of the things that I, I like to tell people is being awkward is not the worst thing. It's a little inconvenient, I think, until you figure figure things out. But to be someone who's mean, uh, to be someone who's inconsiderate uh, or unfair, those are the kinds of things interpersonally that are real problems, not just uh, in how you relate to somebody else, but other people, those are the kinds of things that they'll definitely reject you for. And they'll definitely uh, say, this is not the kind of person I want to be around. Uh, People are uh, surprisingly patient with social awkwardness once they get to know somebody. So when people self-identify as awkward, why are they awkward? In other words, if you asked awkward people, To complete this sentence, I feel awkward because I do what? What are the top answers to that? One is social skills. So they have a harder time 
picking up on the social signals other people are trying to send. And then they have a hard time executing the appropriate social skill in a situation. So take personal space, for example. Um, in the United States, the typical amount of personal space is about 18 inches between people. Awkward people might stand a little bit too far away. And it's, it's funny, if someone's standing 24 inches away, it's actually perceptible and you feel like the person is oddly distant from you. Uh, they could be a space invader and be a close talker. And that's, of course, uncomfortable and awkward in its own way. And so that'd be an example of a social skill where it's a kind of a small thing, but it can actually make the interaction uncomfortable. Uh, the second category is communication problems. So awkward people have a hard time picking up on the kind of underlying meaning that we send in conversation. So sometimes just out of diplomacy, for example, we'll beat around the bush and not really get to the point. If you're not awkward, you get the underlying message someone's trying to send you in those situations. But awkward people have a hard time picking up on that. And then conversely, they sometimes have a hard time clearly communicating to other people uh, how they're feeling or, or what it is that they want. Uh, one of the things they found in uh, laboratory studies is awkward people have a hard time picking up on prosody. And prosody is the sing-song nature of speech, the up and down inflections that convey whether we're curious uh, or angry <laughs> or being declarative. Uh, they seem to miss that cue. And of course, then that makes it hard for them to communicate. Uh, the third thing you find is they have obsessive interests. And so when awkward people like something, they they really love it. And I think that's actually a good quality. Uh, but they tend to gravitate towards sometimes esoteric interests. So the old stereotype of like the Star Trek nerd or the Star Wars nerd, that's actually a little bit true. <laughs> so they really, really get into something sometimes to their own uh, social detriment. And why do they do this? Or why do they lack the ability to know what personal space is? Is it just a lack of maybe people? Well, this is another question. D does awkwardness run in families? If you have an awkward parent, are you more likely to be awkward because you never learned how not to be? That's right. You get it in two ways, actually. For boys, awkwardness shows heritability, so a genetic component it's about 53% genetic. Uh, for girls, it's about 39%. Now, if you're raised by your biological parents, let's say one of them is awkward or both of them are awkward, uh, now you have this disposition <laughs> to be socially awkward. And then the modeling you're getting for social skills in the house uh, is maybe a little bit off or, or not quite uh, what you get with non-awkward parents. And so the kids kind of get it in two different ways. And the genetic component uh, manifests in a lot of different ways. But one of the things you see with awkward kids at a very early age and continues on to, into adulthood is they have a very sharp focus. So I call it a spotlighted focus. And so most people see social life. Uh, if you could imagine a stage at a, th at a theater, for example, they, most people see that stage fully lit. And so they can see everything that happens socially and get social context, uh, awkward people tend to see their social stages spotlighted. And so whatever they're focusing on, they focus on with great intensity, but it also means they're sacrificing 
the bigger picture. And that's not really a, a choice they're making. It's just how their brains are wired. I'm sure there's no single answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When awkward people are lying in bed at night thinking about awkwardness, do they feel bad about it? Do they f- d- does it hurt to be awkward or not? Or, or is being awkward, that's all they know, and, th- and they're fine with it? Well, yeah, when, when you're younger, uh, you kind of want the same things uh, most people want, right? So to be the uh, homecoming king or queen or uh, captain of the team or, or whatever else. Um, and certainly sometimes just to not be clumsy socially would be would be good enough for some for some awkward kids. Uh, but, you know, I think one of the things that, that typically happens is once uh, the awkward student leaves high school and gets into a more specialized situation, whether that's a vocation uh, or university or whatever, they are more likely to find their people. So to find people who share their passionate interest for whatever it is that they love, uh, to be a little more patient with some of the social skill problems that they might have. And so once people get into that, they find the other folks who love science uh, or love math. I don't know if you've watched The Queen's Gambit, maybe love chess. Uh, Once they find their their group, uh, then they tend to really thrive. Well, I want to go back to what you said at the beginning, that you said 40% of people would say they're awkward, and yet, by your definition, it's much less than that. Why Why are, if so many people self-identify as being awkward, doesn't that make them awkward? I mean, who, who, I mean if they feel that way, then they mm. are. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I wrestled with this uh, quite a bit, actually, Mike, when I was uh, parsing out the research. And as you make categories in social science, you want to be really careful <laughs> because... If you get it wrong, and that can have an impact on how people see themselves or how people decide to deal with things. So one of the criteria that I used was to think about accuracy. And so in a social situation, for example, if the task in a study is to decipher what someone else is feeling. And so I have these studies where you're talking to somebody else. They'll ask you at some point to write down what it is you think the other person is feeling. And then the conversation partner will write down what they're actually feeling at that moment. Now, people who are in that 10 to 15 percent who are awkward, they'll get that wrong a lot more often than people who aren't socially awkward. And so sometimes someone can feel like they're awkward. But if you look at how they're navigating the social world as far as picking up on social cues, um, inferring what other people are thinking or feeling, and then acting appropriately, uh, they're doing okay in, in all those regards. For whatever reason, they just feel uncomfortable as they're going through social life. So when I say someone's awkward, it's they feel that way, but they're also objectively struggling with the tasks of everyday social life. Having studied this as you have, do you have any recommendations for people who are not awkward when you encounter, when you, you're having a conversation and you can clearly see that the person you're talking to is struggling somewhat, they're not comfortable, they, they are, by your definition, awkward. Is there some way to put them at ease or, or make this easier for them and make it a better interaction? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question because uh, 
there's definitely things that, that folks can do. And one thing that might not seem totally obvious is if you're, if you're interacting with someone else who's awkward, that will probably make you a little bit anxious <laughs> because uh, as they're stumbling around and so forth, your anxiety is going to increase. One of the things folks can do is to recognize that they're getting ramped up talking to this awkward person and to just kind of slow themselves down, maybe be a bit mindful uh, or meditative about it and take a deep breath and just think about slowing the interaction down. Uh, there's two reasons for that. One of the problems the awkward person is having is that they're feeling anxious in the situation. If you get anxious as well, that's just going to ramp up their anxiety and it's going to be a lot harder. The second thing is, is if you slow it down, that's really advantageous for the awkward person because now the conversation and the exchange is happening at a pace that they can process the information more thoroughly and they can also be a little more thoughtful about how they're going to respond and how they can get through the interaction in a way that's that's interesting for the both of you. Um, you know, one, one thing I'll also say is that if you just give the person five or ten minutes to settle in to the interaction, uh, oddly enough, awkward people often struggle the most during the early part of an interaction when you're exchanging those little social niceties or, or small talk. And once you get into the groove of a conversation and find out the things that they're interested in and they can find out the things that you're interested in that are that are more meaningful, uh, oftentimes you'll find that it's a really great interaction and that they're really passionate and interested about certain things. And if they've practiced their good social skills, they, they will also take a great interest in the kinds of things you're interested in. Uh, and it'll end up being a really good interaction. Well, I think this is not only really interesting, but it's also important because we have all felt awkward in a situation or we've been with someone else who is clearly awkward. And, you know, some of us are more awkward than others. But awkwardness is so universal and it's interesting to get some understanding about it. My guest has been Tai Tashiro. He's author of the book, Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Ty. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. You're not supposed to let little things bother you, but little things probably do bother you. They bother me. And a survey a few years ago showed that little things bother a lot of people. 1,125 people were asked to score their gripes on a 1 to 10 scale. Here are the top annoyances and their average scores. At the top, hidden fees got an 8.9. Not being able to get a human on the phone, 8.6. Tailgating, 8.3. Cell phone use by other drivers, an 8.0. Incomprehensible bills a 7.8, dog droppings, (laughs) 7.6, that probably goes up a little bit if it's on the bottom of your shoe, and unreliable internet service, 7.6. And that is something you should know. If you hear a commercial for an advertiser in this podcast and you'd like to find out more and see their website and all, 
You will find links and promo codes, everything you need, in the show notes. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.